Every three seconds, there's a new victim of identity theft. A criminal could be applying for loans in your name or even selling your personal info on the dark web. Protecting your identity can be easy with LifeLock by Norton. LifeLock monitors your info and alerts you to potential identity threats. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but with LifeLock, it's easy to help protect yourself. Save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your Quarter Pounder. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, I'm so glad you can join us. This is Mission Evolution, bringing the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. This hour, we'll discover the true freedom of letting go. With all the debate on personal freedom as of late, the topic warrants a closer look. Many seem to be, seem to be of the mind that personal freedom is something one must fight for and hold on to, that it's something that can be taken away. What if the only things interfering with personal freedom are the things we're unwilling to let go of, that it's our attachments, not laws or governments, that control us. With us this hour to explore letting go as a path to personal freedom is Peter Russell. Peter is a leading thinker on consciousness and the author of 10 books, his latest, Letting Go of Nothing. His website, peterrussell.com. Peter, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Lovely to be with you. Peter, what, what's your educational background? Um, I was a mathematician. Um, I was at Cambridge University in England and moved into theoretical physics, which is basically mathematics, applied mathematics. And then I got more interested in consciousness and moved into neuroscience. And then as a postgraduate, um, I have a degree in, com in computer science, but I applied my mathematics because I had a scholarship and I was fascinated by computers. I'd been building my own little computers. And so I have a postgraduate degree in computer science, but that's the most out of date degree possible. <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Things move quickly in that realm, don't they? Yes, yes. yes so so how do you go from being a scientist to uh, studying consciousness and spirituality? Well, I realized when I was deep into my study of physics and mathematics that although it, you know, potentially it could explain how the universe works, potentially, we're not there yet. What the one thing that it didn't explain was consciousness, why we are conscious. And it's sort of paradoxical or almost ironical because all of science takes place in the mind. Well, not the actual experiments. The experiments obviously take place in the world, but the theorizing, the hypothesis, drawing the conclusions, the models, all of that is in the mind. 
So the human mind is absolutely essential for science. It's the tool of science. And yet there's nothing at all in science that predicts that any of us should have an inner world of experience, that we should have a mind. Nothing predicts that. And science prides itself on its power of prediction. And here we are, the one thing it can't predict is the one thing we all know absolutely certain for sure is that we are conscious. So that was a huge um, paradox for me. And so I started getting interested in consciousness. And that's why I studied neuroscience, because I thought that would help me understand the brain and consciousness. And I learned a lot about the brain and memory and all those things and neurons. But nobody was interested in consciousness itself. So that's when I realized the way you study consciousness is not by trying to look at the brain, but it's the way that many adepts, spiritual adepts, yogis, monks, meditators have done for years, which is you go inside and explore your own consciousness. And so that search led me, led me to meditation, led me to India. I began to look at Eastern teachings on the mind. And so, and so that, that was how the shift occurred, really, just by this, this fact that the science cannot explain the one thing we all know for sure. There, there's a lot to be said, though, for math and, um, and for those sciences and for studying of the mind. Did that somehow also give you the pieces you needed to make sense of consciousness? Um, not mathematics itself, no. But um, over the years, um, what has helped me make sense of consciousness is understanding how science works, how the paradigms, which are the belief systems, work. And it's been, I mean, what we're talking about, it was my first interest in consciousness. And then it's been a lifelong interest, which has been developing and evolving as I've thought about it and come across new ideas and things so it's, it's an ongoing process but I, I don't believe that consciousness comes out of the brain that, that's why I've arrived at the moment I don't think the brain produces consciousness I think consciousness is already there what the brain does is determine what appears in consciousness so the brain is absolutely essential for what we experience but I don't think it's essential for consciousness being there in the first place so is the brain the translation point from the larger consciousness, if you will, to the individual? Uh, I would say the brain is, the brain creates the reality. It's the, it's the generator of experience. So, you know, when I'm, you know, looking at the world now, I'm looking at you, data's coming in through my eyes, the brain processes it, and the brain puts together its picture of what is out there. And that picture that the brain produces, the brain has created, is what appears in my mind. And so it creates my experience for me. So it's a, I would say it's a generator of experience. That, that's the way I view it. That seems kind of limited if we really think about it. Because I don't mean what you're saying is limited, but mm -hmm. I'm saying that our experience might be limited because of that very fact in that we only hear certain realms we only hear certain frequencies yes. we only see certain frequencies and there's a lot more out there than what our body can pick up and yet our brain is limited to what we can pick up to create the reality we perceive oh yes i mean what we experience is a tiny tiny slice of reality it's just what our eyes are sensitive to our ears are sensitive to and our other senses i mean a dog for example hears sounds we don't hear smells that we can't smell a bat is echolocating a bat is having a whole other sensory experience and other some creatures have electrical senses so we're just experiencing a tiny tiny slice of what is out there 
How fascinating, because here we are fighting wars <laughs> over whose experience is correct and where ours is so limited. And isn't it even different from individual to individual, not just species to species? Oh, of course. Um, I think in terms of the experience of the physical realm, I suspect that when you see a tree, you're seeing very much what I see. So I think our experience there is very similar. But then what happens is we add on our own interpretations, our own beliefs, our own judgments, our past experience comes to condition what we're seeing or hearing. So on top of what on top of what we perceive is a whole layer added by our own our own conditioning, our own minds. So we're adding that on top. And so that's why people have completely different, not different experiences of reality, but different interpretations of reality. They live in different internal realities. And even within that, um, the equipment is, is different too. Like say, for instance, um, Oriental women have much better color vision than Caucasian men. Um, and so, so our, our, the, actually the way we perceive is quite different in some cases. Yes, it is. And again, if you take someone who's colorblind, they're going to see a world different from what we see. Yes, so there are variations. I'm not saying it's absolutely the same, but those variations are still within that tiny slice of reality that we perceive. So how do we make the giant leap from perception to, to uh, consciousness? Well, consciousness for me is the, is the container, if you like, within which experience appears. So you know, we, we are all conscious. Um, but that's, as I say, the one thing we know for sure. And then perception is actually gives us the, the actual world that we experience. It gives us the forms, the activities that arise in our experience. So I see consciousness is, if you like, the container. Perception are the contents that appear in it. But we dictate what those contents are by our past experience and our equipment. Is that absolutely, correct? absolutely, yes. Oh, Very fascinating. Yeah. Is there a way to expand upon that? Um, so we, you know, we come in with kind of a default setting based on our damage and our experiences and our equipment, if you will. Mm. Um, can we expand that so that our consciousness expands or our perception of consciousness expands? So that, yes, I would say consciousness itself doesn't change. It's just the it's just the basic container. What what changes is what we are aware of. So I don't think we can do much to actually change our physical organism. I mean, maybe in the future we'll be able to, but I don't think we can change how we perceive. What we can change is how we interpret, how we judge what we perceive, and that's much more where I think meditation and things come in because we can begin to look at. Look at our thoughts, look at what's going on, look at how we're interpreting things, look, looking at how our, how our egos get in the way of things. So I think there's a lot we can do when we start exploring our own minds and looking at how we as individuals actually work. And in, those, in that area, we all work in very, very different ways. So is there a way also, you say there's, there's no way to change you know, the, the facility that we perceive through, but what about attention and focus? Can't we hone those to where we do become more aware of things around us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And attention, I'm glad you mentioned it, attention is absolutely critical. And I think what happens with a lot of us, most of the time, I know it happens to me a lot, is our attention gets preoccupied with something. We're, we're focusing on something. And as soon as our attention is focused on something, we are not aware of so much else that's going on. And you know that's why one of the things I encourage people to do is just to relax the attention. When we let the attention relax, we can then 
what normally happens when people let the attention relax is they begin to notice, ah, oh, there's birdsong outside. Oh, there's this. We begin to notice things in our environment we weren't noticing or even noticing things in our body, noticing sensations, noticing feelings that we hadn't noticed. So by letting the attention relax, we can allow in more of what is there. A focused attention takes us away from the present. So then by using focused attention, can't we also go on a search and destroy mission to find the places that we are coming from patterns and uh, damage and restrictions that can be cleared? Yes, yes. I would um, not so much focus attention, but having interest, turning our interest into looking at ourselves. Um, so, for example, if, if you feel yourself getting angry at something, you know, we, what I encourage people to do is to actually first of all, notice what is happening in the body. We tend to push those feelings away. We tend to ignore them, think, you know, if I let that in, I'm going to go and punch somebody, and that's not good. So we, we tend to keep things at bay. But if we, if we do the opposite, let in the feeling, first of all, it be, often begins to subside if we can actually notice what's going on in the body. But then look at what we're telling ourselves about, you know, about the other person. And then we can begin to look deeper and say, okay, where did this come from? What happened? What, do, what does this remind me of in my life? And we can begin to explore things in ourselves and looking at how, how we came to be this way. And I think that can be liberating because as we begin to understand ourselves, we can begin to take that into account and we can actually be more forgiving of ourselves. So basically you're saying that the um, um, key to the gate, like so many practices say, is self-knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Self-knowledge. Yeah. And there's actually two senses of self-knowledge. There's one, what we're talking about here, knowledge of ourselves, of you know, how we came to be here, our background, our conditioning, whatever it was, all, all the things that go into making us who we are as an individual person. So there's that self-knowledge, knowing ourselves as an individual person. And then there's also what the spiritual traditions talk about as the self with a capital S, sometimes called the pure self, which is not so much me as a person, Peter Russell, author, blah, blah, blah. It's that sense of I, that is always there. Um, the I that is, you know, experiencing this moment right now is the same I that was there yesterday, 10 years ago, when I was a child. So there's that sense of I, which is always there, but that we don't notice that because our attention is on the world, on our issues, our problems, all that stuff. And so what the spiritual traditions are talking about in terms of self-knowledge is not so much knowing yourself as a person. That's what psychiatrists are interested in who we are as a person and spiritual traditions are more interested in what is this sense of i-ness the sense of i am that is always there and what they well, say it we're we're going to have to pick up on the sense of i am on another side of the commercial great break here peter and i will return shortly so don't go away this is mission evolution with gwilda Wiyaka. For more information or to listen to past archive episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org.
privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. With us this hour discussing the benefits of letting go is Peter Russell. His website, peterrussell.com. Peter, we were just getting, we were talking, having a great time talking about consciousness and, um, and the, the, the great I versus the, the who we think we are in, in a given moment. So the original I, the one that's there from, you know, teenagers maybe, on through our life. Is the process of coming to a point where you can access consciousness partly unburying that original I? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it's um, not so much unbury, unburying it, <laughs> interesting word, unburying it. It's more like, well, it is, I suppose, it's removing the veils. It's removing the veils, because I say it's always there, but our attention is, is so much engaged in our thoughts in the world that we don't notice it. So yes, it's about, it's about beginning to become aware of this quality of presence. And in a way, it's, it is closely related to what we're talking about consciousness in the pure sense of consciousness. Because when you look deeply into yourself, and this is what you know, people, the mystics do and what people do in deep meditation, when you inquire is that inner inquiry, you inquire, what is this sense of I that's always there? Not trying to understand it or anything, but just looking inside and begin to see, what does it point to? What is this? When I say I am, just I am, not I am anything in particular, but just something we all know. We can all say I am. Everybody can say I am, yes. Before we get to what I am, we can just say I am. And if you say, what, what does that word I am point to? And when, what we get down to in the end is we realize what it's pointing to is the fact that I am conscious, that I am aware. And in a way, I is the name we give to being aware so that they're closely, closely related. So that deep sense of I is the I that is aware of this moment, every moment in my life. It's that same I that is aware. So, so that's, that's the bridge between the mind and the consciousness. Yes, yes, in a way, yes, that the eye that is aware is aware of what appears in the mind. Yes. So, so that yeah, seems like it 
that seems like it would take an awful lot of unburying because most people, they say, well, who are you? And well, I'm, uh, I'm a radio show host. Well, right. uh, yeah, but who are you? Well, um, I'm a female. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a mother and on yeah. and on and on it goes. How, you know, how, so much of us is so deeply buried uh, uh, underneath all these false identities. Yes. And yet we're very attached to them, it seems like. You know, that's yes. where our ego lies. That's where our self-worth lies. How yeah. does one begin to start that unraveling process without being overwhelmed? Well, yes. Well, I think you know, the question people ask, you know, who are you? Who am I? That's used a lot in some spiritual circles. But I think it's misunderstood because people immediately get into what you're saying, you know, all the things that define us. I prefer, well, I, I, I rephrase the question when I'm working with people is, first I say, what am I? Not who, because who takes us off on the wrong track, but say, what am I? Meaning what, what we we're talking about earlier, what is this sense of I? Or sometimes just phrase it, not who am I, but just am I? And everybody says, well, of course, yes. So it's, but it's not about getting rid of all these other things, or, you know, or getting rid of the idea of, you know, my name or my profession or anything else. They're there. They're, they're there and they, you know, they have good reasons to be there. They're very useful in life. They're how we navigate the world. It's really a question of just stepping behind them. So, it, it, so it's not a question of like we have to take, take them all away to reveal it, but we can just pause and step behind it. And so you know, just that what I like to suggest to people is simply that, to pause, to just pause, whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, just to pause for a moment and and when we do pause, what we normally notice, what most people notice is they begin to become more aware of the present. As I said earlier, you start noticing what's happening in your environment, you're happening in your body. You start becoming present because our thinking takes us away from the present. Almost all our thinking is about the past or the future in some way. So when we just pause our thinking and just like, ah, oh, here I am, and then experiencing the present. And then in that state of just becoming present, we can just begin to inquire you know what, what does it mean to be aware can i be am i aware that i'm aware can i just 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 quietly noticing here i am an aware being noticing all this going on and it it's not spectacular and it's just a gentle thing that begins to happen and so for me and i think the pro uh, how it works for a lot of people is it's a repeated thing you just you just do this and people do it in meditation and other means and gradually this sense of presence that's always there, this sense, you know, the I am that's always there, gradually it becomes more and more familiar. And it's, you know, people think, I know when I first started doing this years ago, I thought discovering this pure self was going to be some amazing, you know, exotic, ecstatic, blissed out experience. But it isn't. It's just revealing what I've always known, but not really noticed. And so it just gradually becomes more and more familiar. It seems like it requires practice. It is a practice, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is a practice. Some people, for you know, some reason or other, they just drop into it suddenly out of the blue. And then it's usually very confusing. It's like, you know, they feel they've lost themselves. No, it's practice. And I think yeah, most of these things, they do take practice. And the practice, the more we practice, I think the easier it becomes, as in anything. If we practice any sport, it gets easier and easier. But also the practice gives us more and more tastes of that inequality. 
Well, this starts to make sense, initiatory illnesses and people that have had closed head injuries or huge accidents or deep illnesses that interfere with their thought process that takes them into the past or the future and suddenly find themselves in the moment and it changes their lives. So that would explain it, wouldn't it? Yes, because they're discovering this thing which which does change your life because so much of our lives are chasing what our personal self, our ego mind, thinks it thinks is important, thinks what it needs, and that takes us off track. And when that drops away, then we can act much more from if you like from our true self, from our innate wisdom, rather than what our ego and society is telling us. I'd like to change directions just a little bit. You know, lately with the pandemic raging and uh, all the protective measures required to deal with it, people seem to be more sensitive about personal freedom than ever before. What do you, why do you think we're seeing that particular trend and and what can you say about it? Ah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it's, it's different things for different people. But what I would say is I think we all want freedom deep down. Um, and it, it's run, I mean, what we're seeing currently, I think, is just the latest manifestation that's run through human society for years. You know, the freedom to say what you want, the freedom to live where you want, to work where you want, to marry who you want. Th- these are all the freedoms that we've gradually established in our society. And so when something comes along and seems to hint at a taking away of freedom people fight against it because we want we're looking for freedom but what we're looking for generally is is what i call the freedom to you know the freedom to say what you want the freedom to wear a mask or not they are the freedoms to do something or say something but there's another sort of freedom which is freedom from And this is what I think, again, the spiritual traditions are talking about when they talk about freedom. And they say, you know, they talk about self-liberation, the freedom of the self. They're not talking about the freedom to do what you want so much. They're talking about freedom from the, the ego mind, from our conditioning. So the freedom to be ourselves. And that, to me, is the most fundamental freedom, is to actually be ourselves as we are beyond all the conditioning the desires the fears all that stuff that society tells us and that sense of freedom is i think is accessible much more easily and it's and it's a wonderful quality when we have that inner sense of freedom there's a sense of ah relief it's not we're not having the freedom to do having the freedom from being controlled by ourselves. And it's always, for most people, a sense of ease, relief. There's a sense of lightness that comes with it. And it's like, ah, yes, this is, this is nice. So that's isn't, the sort of freedom, freedom I think we're ultimately looking for. Isn't freedom, too, a bit of a trap in that if we hang our sense of freedom on our freedom, too, uh, rather than our beingness, then we are controllable by re- appearing to have those removed or threatened. Yes, we are very controlled by having them threatened or also by having people reinforce our thoughts about, you know, what, what is our freedom. We get controlled by society, by the media, by social media. It can, it can be very controlling because what happens is we get attached to an idea. And this is, I think, behind so much. Basically, we get attached to ideas about what will make us happy. I mean, I think our fundamental motivation beneath everything, everything we do, 
whatever it is, if you analyze it deep, deep down, why are you doing this? What are you looking for? It comes down to we're looking to be happy. We're looking for a better state of mind. That's what we're really looking for. And so that sounds like an inside job. <laughs> it, it is an insight, yes. But what it's really, it's what we've been talking about. It's how do we how do we touch into that inner happiness in the end? But that's what we're looking for all the time is we're looking for happiness out there. And what we get attached to, we get attached to our ideas as to what will make us happy. So we get our attached to, our, you know, having the ability to do this will make me happy. Having the choice to do this will make me happy. And maybe, you know, in the immediate short term, it does because you've created some discontent. And so having that freedom, you feel better because you let go of something you're worrying about or arguing about or discontent about. But ultimately, what we're really looking for is, is to be happy. And so it's about letting go of our attachments as to what we think is going to make us feel okay, what we think will make us happy. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if you don't want them to get your goat, don't have one. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's difficult. It's difficult. But that I see is, is where the real freedom comes from, is letting go of our attachments as to what will make us free, what will make us happy. This is one study when I was in college a thousand years ago, done on uh, POWs from the Vietnam War. And some of these POWs were locked into these coffin-sized spaces. And the ones that made it out more or less intact versus the ones that did not were the ones that reported being able to go inward. Yeah. And to view the world from inside versus, you know, inside of themselves, maybe they go into their memories, maybe they imagine uh, a field, whatever, but it was always this inward turning that made the difference between surviving the experience and not. Is this what we're talking about here? I think it's definitely related. I think it's definitely related. When we go in, we can begin to, first of all, we can begin to there's a richness of going within in terms of our own being. We can connect with ourselves. We can begin to maybe see things in a different way, understand things in a different way. If our attention is out the whole time, then it is controlled by the outer world. And if you're in a coffin-sized cell, that's going to be very, very upsetting, depressing, demoralizing, frustrating. It's going to create all sorts of negative emotions which will really, really, in those situations, I wouldn't like to be in it. They'd really, really, really get you down. But if you can go inside, you've still got these awful circumstances. It doesn't change a thing in that respect. But if you can go inside, then you can begin to just step back a bit from that and you can see you know, what it is you're telling yourself. Because that's what changes everything, is seeing what you're telling yourself, how you're seeing things. And so I think it, it's definitely related. The more we can let go of our judgments and things the more we can actually be at ease in ourselves i'm not saying that you know those people are necessarily going to feel the bliss of what you know a yogi feels but it was definitely in the right direction yes it, it was a, it was an amazing study to me and it, it really reframed the way i create my own reality by interpreting the uh, stimulus around me versus um experiencing what's actually going on or can be going on in the moment it, it's pretty it's pretty amazing so we will need to take another commercial break um, on the other side i'd like to get into more about how we can find freedom by letting go peter and i will return to our discussion very shortly so you stay right there this is mission evolution with Wilda Wieka. 
For more information, to listen to past episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. Our guest this hour is Peter Russell. We're speaking about the hidden pitfalls of attachment. His website, peterrussell.com. Peter, we, we were starting to get into how we can use the um, um, aspect of becoming more conscious uh, to find freedom in our day-to-day circumstance. Would you go into that a little bit for us? Yes. Um, and I th- we, as you mentioned just before we close, is about letting go, letting go of our attachments to things, which, and the way I see attachments, our attachments are our ideas and beliefs about 
what will make us happy. And there's various ways we can go about it. I mean, a very simple way, which you know, I often offer to people, when we think we must have something, whatever it is, is to, to ask two simple questions. You know, is if I got this, would I really be happy? And the often answer, often the answer is, well, who knows? Maybe short term. The other question is the opposite. If I don't get this, can I still be happy? And usually most people say, well, yes. And this, this breaks the attachment to seeing that our happiness depends on what we have or do. And that's what our whole society tells us. We're conditioned into this belief system that says, if you're not happy, if you're not at peace, whatever it is, do something, get something. You need to change the world or whatever it is. So our attention is directed outwards, looking for something inwards. And that's where, that's where I think our society, our society reinforces that the whole time from the moment we're born. I mean, our parents reinforce it because that's the best they know. Our education reinforces it. The media does. Almost every single advertisement you ever see says, you know, you're missing something. You can't be happy as you are. Buy this service, this product, whatever it is, you will feel better. So this conditioning goes deep, deep, deep into our culture. And so the letting go is really about letting go of this deep conditioning that how we feel inside depends upon what's going on in the world outside. Now, there's times, of course, when that's really true. You know, if we're if we're cold, a simple example, if we're suffering because we're, we're really cold, we're not happy, we put on the heating, put on more clothes. So there's times when it's really appropriate that the reason we're unhappy is because something does need to change in the world. But nine times out of ten, if you look at yourself, you'll find the reason you're unhappy is you've created some sense of lack, some discontent, some complaint, some worry you've created in your mind. And that's what's causing the unhappiness. And so by letting go of that, whatever it is you've created in your mind, by seeing through it and letting it go, you're not creating more discontent. And I, so I think it's a, it's a funny thing in a way where we're looking to be, in the, in the general, most general sense, we're looking to be content. We're looking to be content. And we create so much discontent in our minds that we, we can't be content. And yet I think our natural state is one of contentment. And so we're, we're covering it up the whole time. And you know, I sometimes say to people, you, know, you spend your whole life wondering or worrying about whether you're gonna be happy in the future. And the result is you don't feel happy in the present and it's being happy in the present that we really want, not worrying about whether we're gonna be happy in the future. You know, there's, there's a lot of studies out there now that um, indicate that our um, genetic line actually imprints from traumatic experiences and then hands it down through, through our genealogy. And so then that's what we see. We see uh, whole races of people impacted, like the yeah. Jews with the Holocaust or the Native Americans with, with the you know, genocide and on and on and on you go. So we all come with our baggage in that regard as well. How can we work around that? I think by the, the first step is by beginning to see it, see it for what it is, because this stuff is largely unconscious. And, and that's why it controls us so much, because we, we don't know what's going on. We don't see it. 
Um, I think it was Carl Jung who said, what you resist persists, meaning what you don't let into your consciousness stays there and controls you. And so the first step I always suggest to people in letting go is to let in. We think letting go is getting rid of something. I'm, you know, I'm going to let go of these thoughts, let go of these feelings or let go of this trauma, whatever it is. We think it means getting rid of it. I always encourage people to do the opposite to let it in first of all like okay what is it what is the experience you know if you got if you notice there's some trauma that's, that's there whether it's from childhood or genealogical if you can begin to notice how it's affecting you and it always affects us in the body in some way the body i think is our greatest teacher and so i always suggest to people go to the body you know when you're feeling this go to the body notice what's there in the body um, not trying to understand it, but almost in a way of just curiosity and very open. I suggest people inquire, you know, is there something going on in my body that I haven't noticed? And just be a very faint sensation. Oh, there's a quivering sensation in my stomach. Okay, go there, open to it. Not try to understand it, but just open to it. Allow it in. And then the second stage is not trying to change it. Say, so allow it in and then allow it to be. So I say, let it go. Letting go is letting in and letting be. And when you allow it to be there, things begin to change on their own. I think because we're not holding it back, not resisting it, we can begin to see what's going on and begin to maybe understand what's happening. We can maybe understand how our trauma is affecting us. And with all of this, I think the more we can, if you like, bring, bring the light to it in terms of understand it, experiencing it, what happens is it begins to, there's a sort of, um, there's a process where it begins to almost un sort of unwind a little bit on its own. It becomes a little bit easier. And I'm not saying it just goes, but it's, it's an ongoing process, really of becoming more familiar in yourself with what is going on. So you, it sounds like you're talking about our, our tendency is to put things that are unpleasant into denial. But that really just cements them in the body to hide them versus um, processing them, which means you pay attention, you let them be, and then they'll automatically start to move and shift and change on their own because they're not locked down. Is this what you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And we, what often happens when people begin to, you know, put their attention into the body, things do start, sometimes even physical movement, you know, notice something, you know, like some tension begins to release itself. And as you say, it's like, if, if we lock it down, if we don't let it out, it just stays in the body. It just stays there in some way or another, usually there's some tension somewhere. It can even get into some sort of distortion of the body. The, the, the tension the muscles may lead to, you know, uh, something some distortion in the spine slightly we get some neurological pain or whatever so much stuff comes down to stress and tension so much stuff in the body so the more we can release that that tension in the body just basically the healthier we're going to be and yeah go on. so the um the thing that we've been seeing when all of our defense mechanisms and distractions have been removed through being locked down in the pandemic, um, people started acting kind of nutsy. Um, people that seem normal in day-to-day -day life suddenly are getting antsy and nutsy. We stuff things, keeping them in denial. Has this started to emerge in mass? And is this part of the problem that we're looking at as people are trying to rebalance I think so. Yes, I think you know 
the stuff that we stuff down comes up sooner or later, whether it comes up as sort of some angry outburst, which we then you know project onto somebody else and then create a whole lot of personal or social problems, or whether it's sort of we allow it to unstuff and become aware of it. There's two different ways, but it's gonna it's gonna come out in some way or another. For some people, it's like it's coming out the whole time. But I think you're right, when we when we've got nothing to do when we're sort of locked down in, in a different state or we've got other stresses on us, some of this stuff can just can, can burst out in other ways. So I think there is, there is definitely a relationship here between being locked down and a lot of the um, unusual passions that people are coming up with. Put it that way. So, so basically, if we do what you're advising here, start the process ahead of time, when we're struck with difficult circumstances, we could possibly have access to that inner eye and uh, the peace to be found there versus being overwhelmed by the unprocessed garbage that hits us. Definitely, definitely. And that's why, you know, coming back to practice, I think, you know, the more we, we have some sort of practice in our life where we do come up against some difficult situation, I think the, the stronger we are going to be inside, the more stable we're going to be inside to actually handle that. So definitely it's not, not a question of waiting till something bad happens, but by, that's why I like to meditate, it's continually coming back to, coming back to my being. There's an inner, inner stability that's created so that when, when change happens, I'm not swung around so much. I think of it as like, I often think of trees in a forest facing a storm. You know, the tree that's going to survive needs two things. One, it needs to be firmly rooted. And that's about us being firmly grounded in our own being so that we're not tossed around by the wind. We're not blown over by things. But then the other side is trees need to be flexible. They need to bend with the wind. And so I think, you know, we need to be able to be flexible, which, which again is not being attached to how things should be. So that when things go against the way we think things should be, or some surprise happens, we can we can bend with it. It doesn't mean to say we have to say this is a good thing, but we can bend with it. We're not going to resist it. So, so doesn't that the ability to bend, um, isn't it related to the ability to um, not be attached to the way it turns out, to not be attached to the status quo? Absolutely, absolutely. So yes, they're not being attached gives us that freedom to actually respond differently when things happen. Because we can tend to look like, oh, no, (laughs) things are changing. They're going to change for the worse, surely, versus uh, approaching it with a sense of curiosity. This is interesting. I wonder what's going to show up next. Exactly. How do we get to that state of curiosity? One exercise I, I suggest people do is to just hold the question is there another way of seeing this? Not, not to try to find an answer, but just to, you know, you're in a situation and just ask yourself, ask your inner self, is there another way of seeing this? And then just to wait, not to try to work it out, but just to wait, because the answer is going to come from inside you as another way of seeing things. And so that, that question in a way bypasses our attachments. And what comes up is usually a much more loving way of seeing things, a much more easier way of seeing things. And you realize a much more sort of truthful way of seeing things. By seeing things in a different way, does it give you the opportunity to recognize and take advantage of opportunities you might otherwise miss? Definitely, definitely, yes. Um, Because when we're we're stuck in a certain way of seeing things, that conditions we're, what we're going to think is possible, what we can do. When we shift our perception and see things in a different way, a whole new field opens up 
of, of how, how to do things. Um, I mean, to give you I mean, one brief example, early on when I was exploring this, I was having a contentious time with my partner at the time. And, you know, we were both upset with each other. Those things that happen in a relationship. And then I sat down and said, is there another way of seeing this? And instantly, it was amazing. What appeared was, here was another human being struggling with her own life, struggling with me. And instantly, here was a more loving, compassionate view of the situation. It was instant. Everything changed. And then I realized, okay, I know what I need to do. Instead of trying to resist this fighter, I just need to come back and go and actually see her and just say, okay, I see what's going on. And so it changed everything of how I approached the situation. It was all healed within minutes. But because I was holding on to my attachment of how things should be, we've been going on for two days. And yeah. So, so that, um, that requires though, coming back into the present, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It all, I think everything requires coming back into the present. Um, and that's, that's a key, key thing. As Bram Dust said, be here now. It's all about coming back to the present because our thinking takes us off into the past or future in that situation. I could have been getting annoyed at what had happened, blah, 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 blah. Or I could be getting, this is how I want her to be, this sort of stuff. And so well, it is, uh, Peter, it is time for a commercial break. Peter and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion. Don't you go away. This is Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org.
Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, my school, and the other evolutionary tools we offer, visit findyourpathhome.com. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Peter Russell. His website, peterrussell.com. Peter, we were talking about how we can actually uh, stay in the present moment in order to be more flexible um, in the future. Uh, would you continue with that a little bit, please? Yes, yes. And it's not, it's not actually about staying in the present moment. It's about coming back to the present moment mm -hmm. because we can't stay there. If, if you try to stay in the present moment, you'll be off. The mind will come in. It inevitably comes in with something else to think about or some interest, whatever it is. So I see the practice as one of coming, learning how to come back to the present. It's coming back, coming back, coming back. So when we go off, it's like, okay, there I am thinking about this. Do I really need to worry about this? No, just not following the thought. And that's a key thing. When you notice you're on some thought train that isn't really that useful or productive, just choosing, we have that choice not to follow the thought anymore. And when we stop following the thought, the present reappears. We don't have to go and look for the present. The present is here. The thought was taking our attention, our interest away from the present. So when we pause that thought, the present reappears. It's like, oh, yes, here I am. Oh, this is, I can feel the, you know, my seat, the seat of the chair or whatever it is. We come back to the present. It's there. And then something else happens and we wander off again. So that's where, we, that's where the practice comes in. We're talking about the practice is just learning how to come back to being present easily without any effort. And that's also important. It doesn't take any effort to do this. It just takes the, the choice to leave behind a certain thought stream, whatever it is, just to leave it behind for now. And here is the present again. It's there already, just waiting for us. So it's constant correction um, or consistent yeah. correction. Yes, yes. It's you know, it's, it's Peter, it seems like so many of us have what I call these tapes that go on. Um, and once we slow down enough and start paying attention to what's going on inside, we hear these tapes that have been running as long as we can remember. Um, could you speak to those a little bit and how to how to move through that? Yes, yes, um, we've all got those. Um, and I think the first stage is, is what, you know, you're saying is this thing that when we begin to slow down a bit, we begin to notice them. And that's that's the letting them in bit. We begin to let them in. We begin to notice what they are. And then once we begin to notice them, a good question is, um, well, first of all, we can say, you know, how, how true is this? There's usually some truth to it. Because if we got some, some tape going, there's some reason it got set up in the first place. So there's some truth to it. Um, and we can begin to look into that and see what, see what the truth is, where it came from. But there's also the other side of it is what is the cost of this tape? So the second question is, having looked at why it's there, what is the truth to it? What, what is the cost to it? And the cost may be in terms of my relationships, how, my health, how I, how I live in the world. There's, there's many, many different things or just a feeling of tension or anxiety. Once we begin to see the cost, then it becomes easier to let it go. We realize, okay, it was there for a reason, it's been useful, but now it's no longer serving me. And so when we see that, we're not holding on to it so tightly, we can begin to release it. 
So you, you speak of the truth of these tapes, uh, and there's some truth in everything, no doubt. However, if we've been running these tapes unconsciously, have we been creating truth out of them? I think that also happens, yes. Um, I think two things happen. Often the, the tapes we're running actually get distorted. You know, we think we have certain memories and we distort them. We, we create a different truth. But also, yes, each time we're running these tapes, we're, we're reaffirming that particular reality we've created. So, yes, that they do, they become stronger in a way. And that's why, you know, looking at them, seeing them for what they are, begins to defuse that. We can begin to step, step out of that vicious cycle. So as you're turning inward, this, this seems like a really exciting concept to me. As you're turning inward, you're giving yourself the power to recreate your reality to one of your liking versus reliving in a knee-jerk way the things of the past. Beautifully said. Yep. Yes, definitely. Um, that is freedom, isn't it? That, that, is, that is freedom. We're freedom. We're being free. And this is freedom from, again. This is freedom from the conditioning of the tapes and all they lead us to do, which is, you know, maybe against our best interests. So, yes, it's free, freedom, freedom from that. And then when we have that freedom from, we come back to like, ah, yes, this is how it feels to be free, free from that. There's always a sense of relief or something like that. And so then we're in a position to decide, you know, what we want to believe, what we want to tell ourselves, so we can begin to create things in a different way. And, and so if we go, basically what we've done here is we've gone full circle from being unconscious to going into consciousness. When we become conscious, then we have the, the tools, the key that we're in the present moment, and we can shift uh, our reality by shifting our perceptions. But until we let go of the things that have us distracted from the moment we're a passenger aren't we yes yes and we're we're almost a victim of our own thinking and our own conditioning and, and it runs us it runs us so we don't really have freedom at all it it, it determines what we do what we think and so we're, we're in, a, in a sense we're stepping off our own train Let's talk a little bit about polarization, because we sure see a lot of that going on out there. What's the impact of polarization when we polarize against something or polarize for it? What does that do to where we are as far as being in the present moment and being empowered? I think what it does is it nearly always takes us out of the present moment, because when we feel polarized, we feel there's, there's an us and them. There's us and then there's the enemy and they've got it wrong for some reason or another. They're not doing the right thing. They're standing in the way of me being happy, whatever it is. So in that polarization, we, we create this, we, we create a discontent about other people. And that takes us into a whole lot of, you know, again, unnecessary stuff, work, you know, arguing with ourselves about why they're wrong or with other people or whatever it is, or why, why we're right. It catches us. It, it takes us into the world of, thinking and, and again it takes us into the world of discontent polarization may produce a very short-term contentment like i'm right they're wrong but it actually again overshadows that natural state of contentment and it, it's unnecessary really we don't need to get into all this polarized thought it's you know we can we can disagree with people that's absolutely fine we can have different opinions from people but when we start making them the enemy that takes us over and we start fighting. It produces tension, it produces fear in ourselves. It takes us over. So fine to have different opinions, 
but not to get caught into why why they're making them the enemy. It seems like, you know, degrees of polarization, you know, we need polarization in the world for everything to work right down to electricity. But when things become extremely polarized, don't they become extremely distorted? And pretty soon people are getting further and further and further and further apart. And there's no unity, there's no way to find the present moment. And there's no way to find the truth of who we are, or the truth of others. Right. Yeah, that's certain. I mean, that certainly seems to be happening in our world today with social media and things. And the more we, get, we each end up in our own little thought bubble, our own little reality bubble. And, and that's, that's, that's definitely happening. Um, but then I think even within that, you know, we, there's still this thing, we, we have the choice still, we can come back to being present. It stops us being present. But we can, you know, once we see what's going on, we always have that choice to just pause and come back to, ah, here I am, here I am. And, and that can begin to... Um, disconnect us from the attachment. I mean, the polarization just becomes another attachment, another attachment to what is right and what is wrong. But yes, what, we get, yeah. What, what's interesting is the magic that can happen when one person of this polarized situation comes back to center. Yes. There's no longer that equal but opposite pull and it changes the circumstance. Which, how does that happen? What causes that? Because it, I think that's fascinating because when you've got a, some sort of polarization between two people, and it could just be two people in an argument about something, what tends to happen is very subtly, very subtly, we're attacking the other person. It may just be body language, tone of voice, or maybe overt saying, you stupid person for believing that, whatever it is. But there's a, there's a sense of attack, and the other person is attacking us. And so two people are actually in an attack mode. They're, they're fighting each other, and none of us, want to feel attacked we I mean, all of us fundamentally we want to be respected we want to be loved we don't want to be attacked or criticized or rejected so when one person stops doing that it breaks this vicious cycle so if, if you and i were in, in some sort of argument about something and attacking each other if you just you know stop doing it you're not going to fuel me I, I have nothing to attack back and so this is why one person stopping that can actually disarm the other person it's only when we're both attacking each other that we keep that vicious circle going so that's a really really important thing to do what i suggest people do is in any difficult situation where there is something like this going on between two people is to say ask how can i how can i express this in such a way that the other person doesn't feel attacked how can i express this in such a way that the other person feels loved they feel respected they, they feel better for it. And if we start doing that in our life, I think everything begins to change. It's amazing how quickly it can happen. Yeah. So, Peter, what is your mission? My mission really is to distill the essence of what I see is in the world's spiritual traditions. Um, they're often, you know, you look at them on the surface and they all seem different, you know, different views of reality or deities or practices or whatever it is. But I think there's a common core to all the world's spiritual traditions. And what I've been interested in my life is what is that essential wisdom that's there underneath them all? And then finding ways to share that and express that with people in contemporary language without any religious spiritual baggage but in very down-to-earth terms hopefully a bit like what we've been doing today so that's what i try to do in the world that's a beautiful service 
Where can people find out more about you and um, get your books? You have 10 of them out, I understand. Right. Well, my website, which you've mentioned, peterrussell.com, there's all my lots of books and videos and about 400 articles I've written over the years. And my latest book is called Letting Go of Nothing, which is really about a change of mind, what we've been talking up here, letting go of nothing. And you should be able to get that at any good bookstore, support your local bookstore. But there's inf- lots of information on that on my own website. It's right there on the homepage. So peterrussell.com, two hours on Russell, not, not spelling it the French way, but two hours on Russell. Otherwise you end up on another site. So peterrussell.com. So no French, we're going to go for English this time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so what in closing, what do you have to share with Mission Evolution's worldwide audience? Ah, I think in the end, well, there's two things. One, what we've been talking about is just be a little kinder to each other, be a little kinder to each other and pause. Just take time to pause now and again and just come back to noticing how it is to be more present. Being more present, that's that's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that the only place where we can meet each other is if we're present? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we can meet each other in other ways, but then it, it tends to be, you know, more destructive. That's the way we can truly meet each other, because then I am coming from that place in me, and I know you have the same place in you. So we're coming at we're coming from the same place inside. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful thought. Well, I can't believe how quickly time has flown. It's been such a joy working with you. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this wonderful wisdom with our audience. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Our guest this hour has been Peter Russell. Peter's a leading thinker on consciousness and the author of 10 books, including his latest, Letting Go of Nothing. His website, peterrussell.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-R-U-S-S-E-L-L.com. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Join us next time as the mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world.